0: Because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein.
1: Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. As usual, I'm joined today by Don Watkins in Pennsylvania. Hey, Don. Hello. And Stefan Henna in Germany. Hello. So we are going to do an abbreviated Power Hour today. We won't live up to our name, but hopefully you can forgive that in the audience. It'll probably be Power Half Hour So let's jump into some stories. Don, what's your first story?
0: So the IMF recently came out with a report where they said that the world was subsidizing fossil fuels by $5.2 trillion in 2017, which is about 6.5% of global GDP. And Robinson Meyer in The Atlantic, which is not exactly fossil fuel friendly publication, he has a really interesting article where he kind of digs into what's behind those numbers. And he points out that if you just looked at what people usually mean by subsidy, which is the government is transferring cash or giving it kind of tax benefit to a company, the the number is only $296 billion globally. And so there's a question, well, how does the report justify inflating that number 17 times over? And um, Meyer points out that what they do is they have this thing called post-tax subsidies. And this is a subsidy that reflects the difference between actual consumer fuel prices and the alleged full societal and environmental costs of a fuel. And so the way Meyer puts it is that the burning of fossil fuels releases deadly air pollution, hastens the destruction of the climate, and sometimes increases traffic fatalities. And since all of these things kill people, they also depress a country's tax base. And so he says, like, if you, if you include that, that's another 4.9 trillion or 94% of the total. And- I mean, the, the thing is like, these are not like the side effects of fossil fuels are not subsidies. Like they're a side effect of a legitimate use of freedom, or at least they can be if you have a country with the right laws. And it's, I mean, the same way you're not getting a subsidy if you get sick and then go to the grocery store and someone else gets sick. And it, even I think more revealing it doesn't take into account the difference between actual fuel prices and the full benefits of fossil fuels. Like it doesn't say how many tax, this is my point, not Myers, but he doesn't say how many taxpayers are alive and wealthier because of fossil fuels who wouldn't be without them. And it's even worse than that because a lot of the costs are just completely made up. So for just example, Meyer himself, who's not a quote climate denier, he notes that when it comes to assessing the costs of climate change, that the report, in his words, somewhat arbitrarily just decided that each additional ton of carbon in the atmosphere imposes $40 of global costs. And so that, that this is a, it's just a completely misleading report that I mean, I, I don't think has anything meaningful to say, except for it's good to know that. The world has $296 billion of subsidies uh, that are going to fossil fuels.
1: So, I mean, when, when you see these kinds of statistics like fossil fuels have this much in subsidies, one question is what's the purpose of displaying this kind of statistic or featuring this kind of statistic? And in this case, I believe it's it's a combination of at least two things. One is to reinforce the narrative that fossil fuel use is incredibly negative. And then, too, and related, is to give the idea that fossil fuels are easily replaceable, and that there are equal or superior substitutes, if only we we do certain things politically. In this case, they're not even saying, "Oh, we need a green new deal. We need to take control of the economy." It's just, "Oh, well, we just have to stop subsidizing fossil fuels," and then then we'll have an amazing green energy economy. And so in this, with both of these points, it's just they're using numbers and what the idea of hidden costs or externalities to distort the reality. And and the reality is that fossil fuels play an amazingly positive role in our lives. They're the reason why uh, we live as long as as we do. And there's no real way to compute how much, value we get like to put that in dollars to talk about billions of people having longer life expectancies and more opportunities it's it's so fundamental to our our way of life i mean you could assign it i mean you could say it's 500 trillion dollars and that's probably true in some certain kind of sense so it's they're they're trying to use numbers to get away from a that fossil fuels play this incredibly positive role in our lives because they're they're Ultimately, they empower us. so they give us the ability to transform our environment from a, you know, pretty hostile place to a very friendly place. And then two, they are uniquely good at playing that role. The reason why we use them is not just, oh, some conspiracy or some subsidies. It's that the fossil fuel industry is the only industry that's figured out how to efficiently provide cheap, plentiful, reliable energy. For billions of people for all the ways they need power from heating to mobility to electricity to industrial uses. And if, if if we don't take seriously the context that fossil fuels play an amazingly positive overall role and that they are very very difficult to substitute for and really they have no global substitutes uh, in the foreseeable future, then we're going to make horrible uh, decisions. so and anyone who's kind of in the realm of economics, they should be, when they're using numbers, those numbers should be in the service of conveying reality, not distorting reality. Stefan, what's your first story today?
2: Former vice president and now presidential candidate on the Democratic side, Joe Biden, has uh, made some headlines recently. So um, he didn't yet publish any energy or climate policy, but in a Reuters story, uh, there were some hints uh, by his advisors about uh, potentially leaving natural gas and nuclear power on the table, you know, in the realm of his energy policy. And uh, that immediately draw criticism by uh, his competitors on the democratic side, you know, like Senator Bernie Sanders, for example, said uh, that there's no middle ground when it comes to climate policy and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was not a competitor in the presidential race, I think, but uh, who made, of course, his Green New Deal proposal in in the in Congress uh, said there's no middle ground with climate denial and delay. So uh, Joe Biden hasn't even made any concrete proposals yet, but immediately he was criticized for not being radical enough, and uh, so this kind of criticism by other politicians and uh, green advocates. Made him go to Twitter and uh, tweet, quote, I'm proud to have been one of the first to introduce climate change legislation. What I fought fought for in 1986 is more important than ever. Climate change is an existential threat now, today. And then he followed up, we need policies that reflect this urgency. I'll have more specifics on how America can lead on climate in the coming weeks. So... The way the story was built is that you know Joe Biden is sort of a moderate, have, having a middle ground policy, you know, like the Obama era regulations, which I personally, of course, found very radical. Uh, the war on coal and, and uh, barrage of, of regulations that uh, threatened not only coal but also natural gas and oil, of course. Um, but now the issue is, uh, particularly from the Green New Deal. Uh, that sh- totally shifted the landscape. Now, Joe Biden, who would be an extension maybe of the Obama era policies, is seen as uh, too timid and uh, too far middle ground for on the Democratic side, at least. And uh, I, I think that's... Uh, and of course, the Greens also asserted that, okay, natural gas can't be a thing. I think it was uh, actually Michael Mann, the, the climate scientist... Uh, who who said something like, okay, fossil fuels created this problem and they can't be part of the solution, right? So I don't find this particularly convincing, but but that's kind of the position. Um, and so this is, to me, this is a sign that the radical green forces are shaping the agenda. I'm not an expert on the average American voter, but I don't think that reflects even on the democratic side, a, a, you know, vast majority, but apparently... This seems relevant to a lot of the candidates. And one big danger I see, so Biden is sort of a front-runner candidate who is seen as having good chance, chances in the general election because, in part because he's not as radical as uh, Sanders or O'Rourke or, or Inslee or other uh, candidates on the Democratic side, but he might not make it through the primary in, in the Democratic Party because he's not radical enough. So this is sort of a, a problem. This is for, sort of a, a puzzle for him to solve. But once he's elected, he could get away with far more radical policies because, you know, in comparison to the Green New Deal, a lot of things, you know, radical things from the Obama Obama era uh, would look very, uh, you know, centered and, and, you know, timid sort of. One, it's interesting to note
1: that there's this this talking point already of existential threat, and then the new one seems to be there's no middle ground, which that's just about the worst idea I've ever heard. Because you think about there's no middle ground on climate, which means what? That there is no compromise with respect to actions that lower CO2 emissions. That's the only concrete meaning I can think of. And that's exactly wrong because you just think about Bernie Sanders' choice to survive I and mean, he he is absolutely i believe by just by breathing but certainly by his lifestyle he is emitting a lot of co2 he's adding more co2 to the atmosphere everyone who lives in civilized society is choosing to add co2 to the atmosphere and i think rightly so they should value their lives but they have to realize that they are that's a middle ground in the sense of they are deciding well something is higher priority then minimizing CO2 emissions as much as possible, and what is that thing? That thing is life. It's it's human life, and so you're viewing CO2 emission reduction in the context of human life, or as I often say, human flourishing. And th- but thus to say, no, th- this is the only to say. There's no middle ground means that this is the principle that we will not compromise this, and then that means this is our standard, where our ultimate standard of what's a good action or a bad action or a good policy or a bad policy is how much it reduces CO2 emissions. And if that's the case, then mass human death is by far the most efficient thing. And then second to that is a kind of energy policy that doesn't take into account human life because it's it's focused on reducing emissions at all costs. So I think it, it's an important point for people to grasp that every day they are choosing to contribute to rising CO2 levels. That is part of what life today includes, and they need to embrace that and be held responsible for it. And then and re- and recognize the implications of it, including that that there is a higher value than lowering CO2 emissions, and that value is human life. And you only want to reduce CO2 emissions, if you can actually do it in a way that's beneficial to human life. Don, what's your next story?
0: So I'm tempted to read this Bernie Sanders tweet in my best Bernie Sanders impression, but I think I'll leave it to the audience's imagination. But he recently tweeted out that at a time when climate change is the greatest crisis facing the planet, Microsoft and Google are making billion dollar deals with the fossil fuel industry. And what he's referring to is actually something that I think is really exciting, which is this phenomenon of the power of Silicon Valley being brought to bear on giving us power. And so here's just two examples of what there. There's a lot more of this going on, but um, last year Google started an oil, gas, and energy division. And for example, the the uh, Google Cloud and the French oil company Total signed an agreement to jointly to, develop...
1: Total, they're going to get really mad. Total,
0: yeah, sorry about that. Um, an agreement to jointly develop artificial intelligence solutions uh, to for oil and gas exploration and production. And then in February, ExxonMobil announced a partnership with Microsoft to use cloud technology and data to help with production in the Permian Basin. And the... Uh, Sanders' reaction, I find disturbing on a lot of levels. One is just anytime you have the phenomenon of the government telling businesses what legal industries they should or shouldn't invest in, I worry about that. But more generally, we're living at a time when Silicon Valley is being attacked by all sides in really, I think, disturbing ways, particularly when um, there is this huge potential for them to take the power of software in new directions. Um but I should say there is a sort of grim justice here in that Silicon Valley is really talked out of both sides of its mouth, or rather, when it's talking, it is almost always trying to posture as green and even 100% renewable, and now they're trying to profit from the companies that they're effectively smearing as dirty and unnecessary. Now, I don't think the solution to that is to then you know, um, chase them down for working with oil and gas, but it is... They should be more honest and upfront about why about why what uh, they're doing is good and why they think that it is good.
1: Yeah, they could they could really use the human flourishing framework, even if they're talking about okay, well, we believe in transition and whatnot. It has it has to be the idea of you know we need a a humane transition. It, it, I don't think of it in terms of transition. I think of it in terms of of evolution, and I don't think CO two emissions are nearly as significant a priority as, as they claimed to think. But they, they have to put it in the context of, of we want to reduce CO2 emissions as a means to improving human life. And we have to recognize that human life, as we know it, requires cheap, plentiful, reliable energy. And that for, for much of that energy, we don't have a current substitute and you can aggressively look for them, but to deprive people of energy is going to make their life worse in every respect, including they'll be much more vulnerable to climate. And so, again, human flourishing perspective, there's a lot of potential. So I hope that some of the presidential candidates start thinking in these terms, uh, particularly on the Republican side, because at the moment, their energy policies are infinitely better than the Democrats. So I'm I'm rooting for them on energy issues, at least. Stefan, what is your... and, and I should say, and and definitely not on all issues, but um, but definitely on energy issues. Stefan, what's your next story?
2: Uh, U.S. tight oil uh, has become the second lowest cost after the Middle East. So, research by Rystad Energy found that uh, the U.S. tight oil industry is now the second cheapest source of new oil, right after Middle East onshore crude. And just a f- few years ago, uh, tight oil was considered the second most expensive source. Uh, of oil, and uh, now as the cost for producing American shale has been reduced, the amount of recoverable oil uh, has multiplied. Of course, so this is how the reserves work. It's not the raw material; it's how much we are able to extract at you know competitive cost. And this number goes up the, the easier it gets from a technological point of view to extract this oil. And there are a couple of interesting implications here because uh, recently uh, the financial and economic viability of U.S. shale production was uh, put into question. And this now seems to uh, you know, negate this concern because uh, the innovation process is so fast that actually, and there's so much shale deposits the only question is, you know, whether that oil can be extracted economically. But uh, so beyond the the shale revolution, which started around 2008, this is still an evolving process, and so more and more of this sh- of the shale resource is actually becoming available to us. And uh, so, a commentator from Rasted. Uh, also said that u.s shale is actually a short cycle investment so the payback time for for shale project is quite competitive which you know reduces the risk of investors in this area so the u.s shale oil is actually more flexible than other uh you know sources of oil and uh, yeah so th- this is this is really important it al- it's also we always hear about you know how renewables reduce their cost how batteries reduce their cost but yeah you know American shale oil also reduces the cost of producing a barrel of oil and that's very important not only for America but you know globally more and more of it gets exported and uh, certainly I'm in Europe and I'm very happy about that um and so one thing to think about is. What would have been possible if industry wasn't presented with so many uh, obstacles by regu- regulation? So when we look at, at Colorado recently, uh, that uh, updated its uh, laws and, and made it more difficult for new shale pro- uh, uh, projects to uh, come up and so on. So what would be possible if Amer- in America companies were really free to, to produce oil? And gas, you know, safely, but you know, without arbitrary obstacles. So I think maybe we are just seeing the beginning of of uh, the real revolution. So over time, there might be still room for improvement on the technology and on the you know geological knowledge and so on.
1: One thing that's interesting and sad about this, because it's a, it's a good story, is that it's not more of a story. And I've been thinking a lot lately about how, what's the the story that we believe, the narrative that we believe about the state of the world and then the, the different narratives that the news promote are influenced enormously by what I call their standard of value. So how do they define good and bad? Because they're ultimately telling us, hey, here's context that you need to know what's going well and what's going on and how to make things go better and how to avoid bad things. And the standard of, that's so dominant is this idea of minimum environmental impact that what we should be pursuing is a world where we impact uh, nature, the environment, as they'll call it, as little as possible. And then they're looking at everything from that perspective, or at least just about everything industrial. So they'll look at, oh, wow, we're having a lot of impact here and that must be bad. And then we're have we might have less impact here and that's good. And Part of what they ignore is all of the ways in which we have a lot of impact on our environment that are really, really good for human life, because their standard is not human life most of the time. It's minimum environmental impact. So when, we, when we're doing these things, like we're transforming these shale rocks into life-giving oil and gas, that's not considered very important or significant, and even it's, it's considered negative often. You think from a human flourishing perspective, if that's your standard, what could be more interesting than people figuring out more efficient ways to empower people? And that's really what the industry is doing. So there's all these there are all these people who are working really hard to find more efficient ways to empower people, which that makes everyone's life better, makes everyone more capable, and they're not getting credit for it. In fact, they're getting criticism for it. And you think I, I meet all people all the time in industry who will talk about how it's, it's tough for them to be on a plane and it's tough for the, you know, they meet a driver or something like that and they get criticized and it's hard to talk about what you do for a living. And you just think, well, these people are actually empowering people versus the, what is the modern environmental movement doing? I mean, they're basically just shut most of what they're accomplishing is just shutting down and blocking things. So your standard just determines so much because it it determines what you regard as important and how much you weigh things. So the standard we use just leads to a totally different evaluation of, of what the shale energy industry is doing. Don, what's your next story?
0: Well, X, you were just talking about the way in which an example of stories that aren't reported that are positive about oil and gas, and there's also negative stories about, Kind of so-called green policies that don't get reported, uh, I think, for the same reasons. And this is one really interesting one comes from this left-wing magazine Commune, where it makes some really interesting points about how non-green the Green New Deal is, including points that I have not heard made or at least not commonly made uh, from fossil fuel supporters. And so the article is called "Between the Devil and the Green New Deal" by this guy Jasper Burns, and. He points out that he starts by pointing out that like energy is never clean, and even noted that the worst industrial accident in US history, Hawk's Nest in uh, from 1930 was, as he put it, said, a renewable energy disaster, it actually involved a hydroelectric plant. Um, but he goes on to point out that. Um, the Green New Deal in particular re- would rely on massive amounts of mining for the materials for solar and wind and that that process is anything but clean and that if you consider what would happen with a timetable, like we're going to have zero emissions by 2030, you would just need a lot more mining operations. And th- whenever you have this kind of rush to cash in on a government bonanza, you would very likely get a lot of you know marginal Producers, people cutting corners in a really slipshod way in order to cash on. And so, if you're worried about mining, this is not just going to take something that's inherently has a lot of byproducts that you have to worry about, but it would make it far worse. And that it's not just the mining that isn't green, it's that we need fossil fuels to make renewables work. And the way he puts it is. Just because the United States encrusted with solar panels releases no greenhouse gases, that doesn't mean its technologies are carbon neutral. It takes energy to get those minerals out of the ground, energy to shape them into batteries and photo, uh, I I can never pronounce this, photovoltaic, help me out. Voltaic. I always mess that up. Solar panels and giant rotors for windmills, energy to dispose of them when they wear out. Mines are worked primarily by gas-burning vehicles. The container ships that cross the world seas, bearing the good freight of renewables, burn so much fuel that they are responsible for 3% of planetary emissions. Um, and the whole thing is well worth reading. But what was just so refreshing is that, I mean, he, uh, at least in this particular instance, was doing something that Green New Deal supporters are emphatically not doing, which is looking at the full impact of their policies. And instead, it's just the way that it's treated is, well, look, this is restricting fossil fuels, so it's automatically seen as green and moral versus a real serious account of, well, let's really think about what this policy would mean and decide if the if the benefits outweigh the costs.
1: Yeah, I, I have mixed feelings about this kind of thing. I'm certainly glad to see more honesty, but it's... It's interesting that you're getting, in a sense, it's somebody who's more consistently applying the minimum impact standard. So they're saying, yeah. And there's a guy named Ozzy Zayner who wrote a book called Green Illusions, who's 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 big on this, and their their focus is, well, no, actually, all there is no energy that is green that has minimum impact. And look at all of these things, and and they will point out usually very true things and they tend to be much more even-handed. And so that's, that's valuable kinds of, kind of information, but their standard is so focused on let's minimize our impact. And for instance, when they're talking about something like cargo ships, they're not talking about, well, this is amazing. Look at, look at how much these ships benefit our lives. And that's so much more important than a little bit of warming. And So it's, you want combination of you you want the right standard and then to use to use the right standard then you you want to be really even-handed and precise in comparing different kinds of uh, of alternatives but if you have the the minimum impact standard that's a that is a completely impracticable standard you can't actually do it in practice consistently so it always needs to be applied inconsistently and it's often because it always needs to be applied inconsistently, because it would invalidate any kind of activity. What always happens is people always use it uh, in a very biased way. So they'll say, you know, oh, this is fossil fuels are dirty. And then they'll ignore the dirtiness of solar panels, because, you know, because they, they have some sort of agenda. And it could be they want to just destroy fossil fuels, because they're actually efficient. And that would, that would be something or it might be, Maybe more rarely, it's just somebody who has an interest in solar, but whatever it is, it's anytime you advocate an impossible moral standard, it just opens, it paves the way for people to use it opportunistically. Okay, that has been uh, a half hour. Sorry, Stefan, we're going to, your next story will have to go till next week uh, because I have to go give a speech. So maybe I'll talk a little bit about that. On next week's episode, if you have any questions, comments, love mail or hate mail, email Don and he'll pass them on to the rest of us. He's at don at Also, if you are interested in having a great speaker, email Don. And if you are interested in any kind of consulting for your organization, if you have high stakes uh, communications needs and you want help with our messaging, that's a lot of what we do at the Center for Industrial Progress is create superior messaging and pro-human messaging. Again, email don at don at industrialprogress.net. We will be back next week, probably with our usual longer format. Uh, Hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Until next week, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour.
0: Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.